Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 2. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh." For this reason, the king was angry and very furious, and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, 
for you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart." You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay." You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And when, wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are the, the head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others." Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially of iron and partially of clay, 
So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. This is the word of the Lord. The sun rises, and the sun then sets, and another day just like all the days before it, has come and gone. Nature and her laws remain constant. The world of man, however, is not exactly like the world of nature. The world of man changes and it goes through eras. A new era of human history really began with the rise of what scholars now call the Neo-Babylonian period. Uh, the, The power that Babylon exerted was different than what had been exerted up to that time. Even Assyria feared Assyria, effectively the Nazi Germany of the ancient world, had never actually held the whole world in its grasp. But Babylon, for its brief time, it was only really an empire for about a third of the time that Assyria had been, but for Babylon's time, it pulled off something that had never really been done before. It literally laid hold of the whole known world and was the ruler of the whole known world. This was new. This was something that really had not been seen before. After Babylon, there came a series of kingdoms that repeated Babylon's success. Persia, large enough that it needed two capitals, would replace Babylon, and it would rule for a time the whole known world. It would generally extend its rule by silver. Persia was uh, a kind of laissez-faire empire, 
it wanted to create a world where the flow of money really held everything together than force of arms, but it did rule the world in its day, and then it was replaced by the Kingdom of Greece, a Bronze Era empire with armor and weapons of bronze, led by Philip of Macedon's son, Alexander, who would, in his turn, conquer the entire known world. He would be lord of everything he saw for his brief life, his empire then falling into four pieces, to be replaced by Rome, mighty Rome. Rome, the uh, unexpected survivor, Rome, which had been attacked by the mightiest empires of earth and many times had been expected to be eradicated, Rome, with its iron weapons and iron will, would rise up to replace Alexander's empire and lay hold of, again, all the known world. It was a new era among men, as The sun rose and the sun set, and as the natural laws went about their way, life among the world of men had entered a brand new time period, the time period of the superpower. In time, Rome would divide. It would divide east and west, and then ultimately, it would give way to successor states where no longer did you have the superpower, We use that term today, but what England, France, the United States, China, or Russia has accomplished doesn't actually live up to what Alexander the Great had accomplished. A new time period came where states that secede and replace Rome have dominated the earth. There are a few exceptions, but mostly... There have been multiple inheritors of Rome, and they are the powers in the earth. Such has been history from the 6th century BC to this very Lord's Day where you sit in the pew and are listening to my overview of human history. A new age had begun with Babylon that technically hasn't ended. And all of this was in the king of Babylon's dream. It's only natural that Nebuchadnezzar should wonder what would happen after him. He was a mere man whom God in his providence had literally used to change the eras of men. If you were in such a situation, if you had been used in such a way, there's no question that you would really ask yourself what comes next because the world has so changed. And he went to bed thinking that, and God, in his grace and mercy, showed him what would come to pass. God, at times, will reveal himself to unconverted men. The life of Nebuchadnezzar is one of the main themes of the book that we're looking at. Nebuchadnezzar will be brought to conversion. He will be humbled before God and he will make confession that the true God of gods is the real God, 
you will likely see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But he's not there yet. He's a good two chapters from that. And as you can tell, he is not a very good guy. But God, in his own will, for his own purposes and his own pleasure, chose to reveal something of his glory and truth to an unconverted man. And so God will do from time to time. What God is doing, he is doing out of compassion. He is showing compassion for his own. He is giving them a message through King Nebuchadnezzar. But even more profoundly, he is doing what he is doing out of compassion for those who are not yet his own. He is speaking to the entire world in this vision and making known what will come to pass after. He is kindly, generously revealing a truly hopeful message. God is the knower of all things. That really is what Daniel is trying to share with us in relating this account. What does God know? Well, he is the revealer of secrets because every secret that might be is known to him. God is not the God of progressive revelation in the sense of the way it's been used since the 1960s where God is moving through time with us and he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Daniel clearly shows us a God who knows everything that will be, everything that is taking place this very minute, everything that is in every human heart and every human mind, everything that has ever taken place, all of it is an open book to God. God is not surprised. God doesn't gasp when things don't seem to go God's way. God is the revealer of secrets because there are no secrets to him. And he is graciously making known what will come. Compare this to the attitude of the wicked. Some months ago, we looked at Psalm 73, and there the psalmist was lamenting the wicked and their success in this world. And beginning at verse 10 of Psalm 73, this is how he described them. Therefore his people, that is the people of the wicked, the people who depend upon them and look to them for sustenance, Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Such the ungodly talk, but if the ungodly were to ask Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar, or the astrologers and soothsayers of Babylon, they would receive a very different answer. Does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Yep, turns out there is. God knows everything. He knows what you're thinking this very moment. He knows your desires. He knows your longings. He knows your will. 
God knows all things. And this is what modern missionaries might call a power encounter. You have a inbreaking of the kingdom in a very real way. Last week we talked about the diaspora, which has just begun. In the first four verses of Daniel, you have the beginning of God's people being scattered out into the nations. God has taken away from them uh, the blessings of the promised land, immense blessings. The promised land had been given to them to be a place of safety and freedom where they could follow God's covenant without threat. Uh, they didn't follow the covenant. They rebelled against their God. And part of the punishment was they had been scattered out among the nations. And we looked at the fact that in a very real way, even now this very moment, the church of God is still in diaspora. We wake up every morning in the middle of a world that doesn't really belong to us. It's in the hands of the evil one, and the culture is in the hands of the evil one. And we are scattered among the nations. We're diaspora. But it's not exactly all negative. God has scattered his people among the nations, but they remain his people. And where they go, the nations encounter him. They encounter him because he is always with his people. Nebuchadnezzar did not intend to have any sort of interaction with the God of heaven. He didn't plan it or schedule it. But God has scattered his people among his kingdom And God is bringing himself to Nebuchadnezzar because his people are now in his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn there is knowledge with the Most High. God does know all things. God is going to prove it. And God is the purposer of all things. These kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar sees... Their rise is not an accident of history. It is not something that could have happened differently if there had been different factors. It was not just, you know, that's how it worked. In Daniel's prayer, he prays to the God who sets up kings and takes down others. When Daniel talks to the king of Babylon, the man who is considered by the world the king of kings, which Daniel doesn't call him. He calls him a king of kings. When he talks to the most powerful man on earth, Daniel uh, says these words to him in verse 37 through 39. Uh, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. And he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. God is revealing in power that what history will be is in his hand. Nebuchadnezzar will have a little problem with this. When we get to chapter 4, he will look over his city and say, Behold what my hand has made. Behold the glory that I have created. And he has heard from the prophet of God 
God made you a king of kings. God gave you a kingdom. Revelation has been given to him that you didn't do this. God did this. And having been given the revelation, God's not going to take well to the fact that he doesn't receive it. But that will come later. As it stands, God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, all of these mighty kingdoms with their amazing pomp and power, the economic power of Persia, which will revolutionize the way the world does business, the amazing cultural and military power of Greece that will drive all the way into India, the incredible power of the Romans who will style themselves as masters of the earth They will have armies that will uh, be unchallengeable from one edge of the Mediterranean to the other. All of these are not just accidents, but they are also not the work of the hands of the men who think they built them. God has raised up these empires. He has raised them up one at a time. He has raised them up to be what they were. He has raised them up to have their place in history, and he has decided how long their history will be. The head of gold will be ceded to the kingdom of silver, which will be ceded to the kingdom of bronze, which will be ceded to the kingdom of iron, which will ultimately be a mixture of iron and clay. All of this will take place because the hand of God makes it so. It is not human cleverness or human technology. It is not the might of armies or the military technology they possess. It is God bringing these things to pass. Why does the era change and mankind live in a new day? It is because God has brought it to pass. And why has God raised up these kingdoms? Nebuchadnezzar will answer the question in chapter 4 with, because I'm so great. And I'm absolutely positive that his successors will make the same statement one after another. But they are totally and completely wrong. The major focus of the revelation, the major focus of the chapter, is that God is raising up really very barbaric empires, inhumane empires, uh, cruel empires, but they are being raised up for his purposes. And what is his purposes? We find that in verse 34 and 35 and 44 and 45 where we read this. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became the great mountain and filled the whole earth. Why were these kingdoms, these empires, these amazingly strong, unbelievably strong world powers raised up, they were raised up specifically to be destroyed. 
They were raised up because God would raise up another kingdom. He would create it without human hand at all that would bring them to nothing. Going on to verse 44 and 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This is a kingdom which will not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms. It will be a divine kingdom, and it shall stand forever. God is in the kingdom-building business just as much as Nebuchadnezzar. He is building a rulership as much as the leaders of Persia. And he is using their labor to lay the foundations for his kingdom. As the great empires bring the entire world together under their rule, they are laying the foundations for the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Christ, to spread throughout the whole earth. Babylon establishes the beginning of the era. Persia lays the groundwork for communications among all types and conditions of men with their economic systems. Greece further unifies the world and gives the world a language, the Greek language, which will be the vessel for the New Testament to be written in. It will be the vessel the Old Testament will go out into all the world through in the Septuagint. Rome conquers the world, but lays Roman roads all across the known world, roads that will be walked by apostles bearing the word of the real king of kings and the real lord of lords, going to all the people of the earth, brought together under these vicious evil empires, the king of kings and lord of lords will build his kingdom out of the bones of theirs. And theirs will be bones. They will be crushed to dust. They will become nothing. But the empire of the king of kings and lord of lords, the rule of God in Christ, that will be forever. What is the stone that is hewn without human hands? What is the kingdom that will grow to fill the entire earth? It is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Empires will build their monuments and will glorify their great men they will celebrate their great achievements and they will disappear into the dust and later generations will look at their ruins and say, I don't really understand what these are. I don't know what their language meant. I don't know what their culture was like. But the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will grow and grow and grow and it will never be reduced to a ruin that men dig from the ground. It will never be thrown into the scrap heap of history. The kingdom which will rule the earth one day with no hyperbole, the kingdom will never end. And it is the kingdom of the Lord Christ. But 
having said that, we need to look at the implications of all this language of destruction. The kingdom of heaven will destroy these kingdoms. It will not just forever be a diaspora. It will not forever just be in them. It will reduce them to dust. It will grind them so that they are like chaff on the threshing floor. They will not be able to live in peaceful coexistence forever. But the kingdom of our Lord Christ will crush them to pieces. We oftentimes sing Psalm 2. In fact, we're going to sing that this morning. In Psalm 2, we have these words that we read in verse 7 through 9. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So your kingdom will take in the whole earth. I will give you all the kingdoms of men, and what will you do with them? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, who are these verses talking about? If you believe the New Testament, they are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get to the book of Acts, and the church has been threatened by the powers that be to not preach the gospel, they have been told that their activities are illegal. Uh, Technically, they are in the worlds of men. How does the church respond in chapter 4? Well, we read that beginning in verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who spoke by the mouth of your servant David and said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So the early church said, this is the Lord Christ being talked about in Psalm 2. His kingdom will rule the whole earth and he will crush the kingdoms of men. He will not leave them standing. What did our Lord Christ think about this psalm? Well, turning to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 25, we read this. Christ is speaking. Hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. So who will crush all the kingdoms? Who will 
render them to powder? Who will make them as if they had never been? It will be the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom will rule the earth someday, and he will be a real king. He will expect real obedience, and he will bring the kingdoms of men to absolutely nothing. That is the Christian hope. If we were Congregationalists or Presbyterians in 1950, and we were believers, we were people who believed the Word of God to be the true Word of God, there would be a very strong likelihood that we also would believe that the purpose of the kingdom of God was to make the kingdoms of men better, that the church was a a pillar of the community, and it ought to behave that way. It's one pillar among many pillars. It should be a good citizen of of, of, of the kingdom of man, and it is designed to uphold human society to, to make society better. In the world that we would be living in in 1950, it would be kind of comfortable to make that assumption. But the scripture does not picture the kingdom of God living coexistently with the kingdom of man. It pictures the kingdom of God crushing the kingdoms of men. Jesus is a real king. He is the real king of kings to the point where his servant Daniel must look in the eyes of the most powerful man on earth and say, you are a king of kings, but not the king of kings, because Jesus is the king of kings. And the nations of the earth know what that means. Why do you think the governments of the world for 2,000 years, have tried to stomp out the kingdom of Christ. If the kingdom of Christ was all about simply making the world of men better, if it was simply about sanctifying the French Republic, or the German Empire, or the British Empire, if it was simply about civilizing men, the world of men would find some place for it. But as it is, the powers on earth have always had a hostility to the kingdom of God. Sometimes that hostility is kept in check. Many times it is not. Why do they hate Christ? Why do they hate the one who said, love your neighbor as yourself? The one who said, if a man forces you to go one mile, go two. Why do they hate such a person? It's because they know that he claims to be the king of kings, the lord of lords. That power is expected to stop with him, and they resent it. They resent the kingship of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, one must replace the other, And Daniel says, the vision is sure, it is appointed, it's going to happen. The kingdom of Christ will one day be the only kingdom that is. And thanks be to God. 
That is the central message of our passage. And I would have been remiss not to have focused on it, and I did. But we have come to the book of Daniel with something of an agenda. We are the diaspora. We do live scattered among the pagans. And we're looking at this book asking the question, how then shall we live? Well, this vision comes in a historical event. The men of the diaspora who we are following, specifically these four young men, have to live in diaspora. And from what happens to them, we can also look and answer the question that we're looking for. How do we live in this condition? Well, for our purposes on that track... I think the first thing we ought to note is that Daniel presents the most powerful man on earth who has conquered everybody he knows. He is cynical about human religion. He starts the chapter cynical about human religion. He could tell the soothsayers, the diviners, the Chaldeans, he could tell them the dream. And that's what they expect of him but he's not going to do it. And why is he not going to do it? It's because men created in the image of God are not idiots. Well, not all of them. Uh, Some notice that the religions of men don't live up to what they claim. We don't know as much about the religions of Babylon as we would like to. Uh, We are just actually now beginning to learn certain things about their culture from the cuneiform tablets that are being dug up out of Babylon. But uh, one thing we do know is that these soothsayers, these diviners, they they all tended to claim the gods talk to me. That, That was inherent in their religion. And so if you make a claim like that, somebody may expect you to back it up. And so that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He is laying a challenge saying this series of religions, because apparently Babylon was kind of polytheistic. It's not the right word. Multi-religion, whatever. Uh, He's basically challenging them, prove to me that what you claim about your gods is true. And when they are challenged to do so, they can't do it. This is actually the story of mankind from time to time to time. When our Lord Jesus walked among men on earth, he came at a time where the citizens of the Roman Empire were pretty jaded and cynical about the gods. If you read the writings of the philosophers and the great men of the time, religion had become a sort of, yeah, you know, yeah, so-so story, most men were pretty cynical about religion. And they had every right to be. The temples were designed to play religious tricks. The, the, the temple of, of Mars, for instance, in Alexandria, had a very ingenious set of contraptions that uh, the priests could pretend that Mars was opening the door to the temple by himself. 
The only problem is you have to have people build something like that, and people who build something like that talk. And so uh, there were thousands of these kind of things, and men kind of knew religion was an act. Our Lord walked among people who really were very jaded to man's religion because that's what man's religion is. It's man's religion. It can't but fail. And Nebuchadnezzar puts it to the test, and it fails. But the God of the Bible can and will meet human longings. In another prophetic book in the Old Testament, in the book of Haggai, uh, the prophet talks about the glory that's going to come to the second temple that's being built at that time. And he gives a prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what we read. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to, and and everything here is capitalized because it's a title, they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Our Lord Christ entered that temple. Now, it would be greatly expanded by the time he entered it, but it was the second temple. And the prophet describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the desire of all nations. Why does every culture on earth have a religion? It's because they have a deep yearning in them. Now, they have a hatred of God, too, but they have a yearning for the goodness that God would give. They long for there to be a God. They long for redemption, even as they flee from the light. The nations desire God at a certain level. And when they challenge the soothsayers, the diviners, and the Chaldeans, they can't, they can't give the goods. But God condescends to this power encounter God condescends to be known by Nebuchadnezzar, and God shows him without any question, I am the God who can answer your desires. You want a real God. You want a God who knows your thoughts. You want a God who is the revealer of secrets. You want a God that is not like men, but is the creator. Did you notice, by the way, how in Daniel's prayer he talks about God as creator? Did you notice how in the early church's prayer in Acts, they talked about God as creator? This is a theme underlying the whole Bible. God is the ground of being. He is the giver of everything. He is the creator of all things. Even an evil man like Nebuchadnezzar, who will kill you at the drop of a hat, he's actually got a hole in him longing for God. And God responds. God shows that he is willing to respond. In the Greek scriptures, there are three words that are constantly used when a miracle is done. And this is a miracle. With Daniel being able to look into the king's mind and tell him his dream, 
we are on miracle ground with this. In the Greek scriptures, whenever a miracle takes place, there are three words that the Greek utilizes, and they tell us why God does miracles. Does God do miracles because he likes special effects? Does he wow the crowd just to be wowing them? The answer is no. These three words really express what a miracle is about. The first one is the word miracle, and it means the setting aside of natural law. This doesn't happen very often. If you look at the biblical timeline, very few miracles happen most of the time. Whole centuries will go by, and there's no record of a miracle. But God, who created all things, can set aside the things he's created. God, who has uh, created existence, can create another existence if he wants to. And a miracle shows the power of God over all things. If God can create from nothing, God can raise the dead. And when you see God raising the dead, you realize he has created from nothing. But the other two words, for our purposes, are more significant. One is sign. God never does a miracle just to do one. God does a miracle as a statement of who he is and his nature. Now that message may be very simple. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, when you read about the widow of Nain, whose only son has died, and Jesus goes up and touches the dead body and revives him and brings him back to life, The message there is God has compassion on the weakest in society. And that's a pretty simple message. It's also extremely profound. But it is a message. When God heals lepers, it is a sign that God drives away uncleanness. It is a sign that he is banishing the curse. God is always speaking. The God who gave the logos, who gave the word, is always talking. And God does miracles with a message. The message here to Nebuchadnezzar can't be missed. There is somebody greater than you. There is somebody who is setting history in motion. There is somebody to whom all history will call uh, Lord. uh, And he wants to talk to you. And then the third one, and perhaps for Nebuchadnezzar, this is the most important... Uh, they're called wonders. What is a wonder? Well, a wonder is something that stops you in your tracks and makes you really think about something. Remember the word Selah, where you're singing a psalm and then you stop and you really think about that? Well, the word wonder kind of applies that to miracles. When God interrupts natural law and 5,000 people are fed out of two fish and seven loaves, that should stop you in your tracks. That should really make you stop walking through the world on autopilot and realize there is far more to the world than you imagined. God is getting your attention. And that is what God is doing here for Nebuchadnezzar. He is doing a miracle that Nebuchadnezzar can see a sign and be placed in wonder. He is drawing a pagan king to himself redeeming him, and doing so through the fact that God has caused the diaspora. 
even in the punishment of God's people, God is working for his own glory. We are scattered among the nations, but God is building the kingdom. And he is having compassion on his own, and he is having compassion even on the soothsayers and the priests of Babylon. You know, there's a whole segment of Christians that probably would have been okay with all these people getting killed. After all, they are the competition. They are the pagan priests of pagan religions. And I don't have to think real long and hard to think of about 25 people I know who'd say, okay, sounds good. But God acts to glorify himself, and he spares those people. In fact, when Daniel is asked, how is it I'm able to do this? Uh, Daniel says, I'm able to do it because God wants to make this known to you. And also, it's because God is acting for me and for all the wise men, the priests of other gods, the soothsayers, the diviners, the Chaldeans. God has compassion on them. They are not in the promised land. If this were in the promised land, uh, God would be defending his own holiness, and you know what happens to pagan priests in the promised land if things go right. But this is the diaspora. This is us scattered among the nations. God is revealing himself even to the priests of other religions, and he is showing his compassion, and Daniel is doing that too. Daniel says to Azrael, not, don't kill me and my four friends, and here's the address of everybody else. He says, don't kill any of them. I'm going to go to the king. How do we live in diaspora, surrounded by people who are benighted in darkness, who, who serve Satan under various names, who do not have the fruits of the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit? How do we live among them? The answer is we live among them in compassion. We live among them making friends of them to the level we can and revealing the glory of God to them and really caring about them. The more the pressure of pagan culture comes to bear on us, the more we're likely not to do that. The more we're slapped up one side of the head, we're more likely not to turn the other cheek but we live among the, the, the pagans because God has willed it. And he has scattered us among the pagans that the Nebuchadnezzars in our life can be brought to submission to him. And so as we live in diaspora, we live under the hand of God using us to be salt, light, and leaven to the pagan world. God knows what he is doing, sending us out in diaspora. In conclusion, it needs pointing out, though, that at the beginning of this story, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't make any distinction between divine religion and religion in general. He didn't know anything about it. He just thinks religion is religion, and he's cynical about it. If we let that distinction stand, it will be deadly for us. If you stop and think about what has happened over the last 20 years, 
we have had something of a change of era. 20 years ago, you had a religious attack on the institutions of the United States. Most of the world is like Nebuchadnezzar. They, they don't begin with an understanding that there is one true religion and there's human religion. They just see religion. And they are reacting like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm cynical to religion. I don't know the difference between uh, the holiness church down the street and the mosque in Richmond. Religion is religion. Daniel is used by God to show there is one true God who reveals secrets, one true God who created. There is one true religion, and the rest are false. And in revealing that to Nebuchadnezzar, it is not a small fact that that saves their lives. Nebuchadnezzar, in his cynicism, says, let's kill all the religious people. And he doesn't know the distinction. We must say... We must verbalize there is only one true religion, there is only one true God, there is only one way of salvation. We must show this, and we must believe it. And ironically, one of the greatest sins of Christian liberalism is that it wants to run in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, I've never gotten all the way through Christianity and and, uh, Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. I've read probably all of it at some point, but I've never sat down and read it all. And I'm trying to do that now. And one of the points he makes is that the modern liberal approach to religion is basically to agree with Nebuchadnezzar. The liberal wants to make religion even when it has wildly clashing doctrines, ultimately all the same thing because all religiousness, all spirituality, well, it all goes to God in the end, and doctrine isn't significant, and truth claims aren't really significant. Religion is religion. Well, Nebuchadnezzar agreed religion is religion, and it was what he was cynical about, and he was willing to kill everybody. Because human religion fails you. Human religion leaves you in darkness. Human religion leaves you empty. There is only one God, and he is worshipped in only one way, and you can only approach him through the one covenant. And the world may think that that's very close-minded. The problem is, that's the truth. There is one God, one way of worshipping him, And Daniel and his friends are alive at the end of this story because they have made that distinction known. God has been pleased to reveal himself as the one true God, and Daniel is not arrogant in saying it because it's true. Daniel is no more arrogant in saying there is only one way to God than you would be if you said the only thing we can breathe is oxygen. It's the truth. May God give us grace as we live as diaspora.